Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Just in time for Father's Day, I want to talk about the father wound. You're welcome. And in a way, I've um, I've been wrestling with and being wrestled to the ground by issues around the masculine, around the sacred masculine, and and of course, in turn, the feminine and the sacred feminine, and this realm, this realm of um, of of archetypal possibilities and archetypal realities and energies and and the wounds that are 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 left that we carry everyone carries a father wound everyone carries a mother wound and it's not just personal i mean you have your own very personal and unique um, wounds delivered by your own father by your actual father and how he lived and moved and whether he was present or absent, whether you ever even knew your biological father or not. This, I mean, no one chooses the, the time and hour and day and era of their own birth and much more their parents and the mystery of the parental, um, the, the mystery of two human beings giving birth and bringing forth a, another human being into into this complex world and 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 yet we're we're left with with our um, yeah our very personal uh, shape and the and of course then there's the the transpersonal side or the not so personal side the the big story of father son the 900 thousand year old um, pattern we could say I'm saying 900,000 years old because they were just excavating a, um, you know over the last year a site that has human tools from 900,000 years human tools from 900,000 years ago so we just have to keep rolling the clock back what do we mean by the human experience 900,000 years of pretty advanced technology, which means advanced cultures, which means advanced villages and relationships and dynamics and roles and patterns. And I know in some ways it's the brave new world of the modern era and artificial intelligence and, and technology. And we can fly in, a, in the sky at 30,000 feet which we could only imagine with Icarus. And, and yeah, it's, it's a brave new world, but on the other hand, our psyches are 900,000 years old or 2 million years old is probably more like it. And, and so the father-son dynamic, the father-daughter dynamic is, is part of the shape of the human psyche, we could say. And, and our own fathers um, unconsciously play into the pattern and, and, and awaken certain um, energies and possibilities and, and problems. And, uh, and I think the terrain I want to, to talk about today, I think is very important, just in my opinion. And, and in an age where, where words like patriarchy and toxic masculinity and masculinity in general is, is, is being challenged and, and upended and um, 
and shamed, it's really hard to talk about, well, what do we mean by the masculine and what are the wounds? And and what are the, the wounds that our own fathers carried that um, that that have um, what's the right metaphor? The boat of our father is left awake and and we can't help feeling the the waves of of the, the of the way our own fathers lived as a son, as a daughter, as a, as a step son or a stepdaughter. So this is really important and and these these modern holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day, otherwise known as um, the holidays of guilt, it's the reason why I think it touches the guilt is, is not so much like, like, oh, I, I'm, I'm like a not a great son and I should do something for my parents. Okay, fine. Um, but it's actually, it touches, it touches some shame here. The shame of, 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 of the wound really, or I should say the shame that we carry because we're not well relating to our wounds or, or we're just learning to relate to our wounds and Yeah, so I want to offer some perspectives here, and and I'm going to be speak, uh, speaking quite mythically, poetically, symbolically. I'll try to be practical. I I, I challenge you to stay to the end, because I'm I'm going to offer some questions, even like sort of journal oriented questions. And if you'll take them seriously, I think uh, you'll be following an ancient invitation here that needs some tending. So um, I want to use kind of, I want to follow two camps. You know, I've been, I've been deep in this stuff for a long time. And it's, it was almost when I had the idea, I want to make a, a podcast about the father wound. Um, I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. And, and I have all these resources and input and ideas. And, um, and in addition, it's just, it's partly the age that I'm at. Uh, my dad died uh, a few years ago now. And maybe even seven years ago, eight years ago. I'm, I, I can't remember. I'm not actually really that good at, at time. It's kind of bendy to me. So um, it's been a while. And I remember when my dad died, I got a text from my roommate in college who's, whose dad had died a few years before mine. And he said, welcome to the club that, that no one wants to join. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And, um, and just recently many of my close friends have have lost their dads and just this week in fact i had a close friend lose his dad in the week before as well and in the last couple of months um another friend of mine lost his dad a couple of years ago and and i'm just i've just now exhausted the list of close friends so it's like um yeah it's partly age but it i think losing your dad you know Freud has that haunting line you don't become a man until your dad dies and and uh you know, nothing. Freud can be so provocative, and but it it starts to dig around in 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 this world, in the world of of wounds and and sensitivities. And maybe I should say this at the beginning that when we're talking about wounds, we're also talking about sensitivities. It's like we wouldn't be wounded in the way that we're wounded. It wouldn't strike us in a certain way if we weren't particularly sensitive or even vulnerable in that sense. And 
I don't know. It's, I guess that's an important sort of image to carry with you here. Because wounds, like we live in a very wound-identified culture, which is why I, I almost didn't want to call it the father wound. I want to call it something else, but I thought I'd get right to the point. Because everyone is claiming the various ways in which they're wounded and and even traumatized. And of course, uh, people have very, very vastly different def- different definitions of what they mean by these things. But um, I, my my belief is it's a very wound identified culture, and 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 it's become a kind of identity. Like I I'm I'm wounded in this way, and therefore this is my identity, and and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, because really, the the whole gift wound dynamic is the great secret of the human soul and of the human psyche and of the human experience and and it's 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 where we're wounded where our sensitivities reveal themselves and and I don't wish that on anyone I wish there was another way I I wish like we could just come to our core gifts and sensitivities without it hurting in some way but it just doesn't and and so I, I don't celebrate um the wounds that we carry but I, I also happen to believe they, they carry tiny little seeds of possibility. And, and I'm not asking anyone right now who's listening to become overly identified with their father wound. We just want to describe the train. Well, really, what's it like? And what's the journey of becoming a son? What's the journey of becoming a daughter? And, and, I, and I can only speak because, you know, I can speak to becoming a son. I can't really speak to becoming a, a daughter, unless, except I'll, I'll try to... To, to cross that bridge and but like like many of the things I th- I think I'm saying here that applies to to masculine to feminine to male female to son daughter because the psyche is both the psyche is masculine the psyche is feminine uh, even if you have a kind of dominant orientation we it's the yin and the yang and and so I'll, I'll encourage you to listen in that spirit even if at times I'm talking about father son it also means something more than that so I want to begin with an idea here that comes from um, uh, Robert Johnson. He has a book called The Fisher King and the Handless Maiden, and it's a really, really important book. And these are really old myths, like 5,000 years, 10,000 years, older than Christianity, older than the, the major religions. And um, they tell us something about, about, about the psyche, about personhood, about growing up, about dads, about culture, about moms, and and um, what what uh, Johnson says at the beginning of the book is that men in particular, and I want you to to think fathers right now for a moment, are wounded in the feeling function. That's what he says. The feeling function. It's it's probably the major wound of Western culture, of Western civilization, and. And here you need a, just a tiny bit of, of Jungian uh, backdrop to, to get what he's saying or, or get the, 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 the deeper layers here. So uh, Jung argued that uh, all human beings, uh, male and female, have uh, four functions here. Thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuition. Or sometimes imagination, but intuition. Like thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuition. Those are the four four functions, and and um, because of of the enlightenment, and you could even say because of patriarchy. And I I'm using air quotes right now because I want to. I'll talk about that word in in a little bit. Um, the the thinking function has ruled the day, and it's even a cliche. It's a trope. It's uh, you, and cliches always have some truth to them. It's like 
Um, so, you know, that guy is up in his head or, or, or dad is in his head, you know. Um, and it's, it's not obvious what they're feeling here. And, and I work with a lot of men. I work with men and women in, as a companion guide and, and also in my retreat, retreats and programs. And sometimes when I'm working with men and let's say we're working a dream or we're just talking about life and, and I'll say something simple like, uh, well, how did that make you feel? And, and almost always they begin by saying what they think. Well, I was thinking this, I was thinking that, and I'll just try again. Like, okay, well, how did that make you feel? And, and sometimes it'll take three or four times before they'll really even hear me. And, and I'm suggesting from Johnson is that the, um, they're wounded in the feeling function. It's not that they don't have the capacity for that. Everyone does. And now feeling is, is kind of tricky because there's maybe a distinction between feelings and emotions, but, um, I, I, maybe I don't want to explore that right now, but, um, what he means by feeling is not just having emotions or having feelings and being able to identify them. That's like really low level. And that's also really important. Sometimes I guess we all do. I do as a man and as a father, because I'm, I'm speaking from experience. I, I'm mostly unconscious of this, but sometimes I become conscious that I, I don't know where the feeling is here. So that's, that's a huge leap in a way, but it's still like kind of on the surface because what the feeling function really reveals in Jungian thought is the capacity to um, be in relationship to values. Thinking actually will, most people think they're, they're thinking rationally and using values and systems, but it's actually the, the feeling function that can get us into the taproot here of what is actually valuable. And without the question of what's valuable, or I can change it to meaningful, valuable or meaningful, then, um, then we can operate very myopically and, um, and blind and without passion, really, without pathos, without feeling, without energy, without vitality. And that doesn't serve us very well. And so maybe we could say everyone in our culture right now, every man, particularly, women are also wounded in the feeling function, but it's maybe slightly differently. Um, and certainly fathers and, and or our relationship with our fathers, that's the kind of, um, that's one way of describing the terrain of the wound. It's the feeling function. Okay. To, to sort of like dance with this a bit, I want to talk about the Fisher King. I, I think I, I maybe even made a whole podcast on the Fisher King. I should have looked before I started because I've certainly brought, brought it up. I think it's one of the more important myths for our, our era, our age, even though it's really old. And you could say, don't we need new myths? And I'd say, well, kind of. Um, we, we, we get new myths when, when the muse gives them to us, but um, we certainly need to, to listen more deeply to our ancestors, which which is what I would argue for. So the Fisher King is a, is a pretty long myth and, and it has several dimensions. It's related to the Parsifal story and the Grail myth. They're all kind of part of the same story. And the great thing about myths, it, it, myths is they weren't told the same in every culture, it, it show, it, which reveals that there are some core truths here, but there's also a lot of flexibility in you know, Jesus's parables are like that. And the Bible is sometimes like that. And if I bet if we were followers of, of Jesus back in the day, back in the day, um, 
maybe he would have told the same parable but changed the end each time he told it, depending on who he was talking to. So myths can be like that. And um, so there are several versions here, but I just want to tell you the very beginning of the Fisher King. So it begins with the story of a prince who's, who's you know, in, in, in adolescence, is, is not yet a man and not yet a knight, we could say, um, but is, is something else and is on the way or maybe not on the way. And anyway, he wanders into a camp that's kind of abandoned and um, yet there's a salmon roasting there above the fire and he kind of looks around, and he's hungry and, and I think he knows I probably shouldn't do this, but he just can't help it. And, and I won't even go into the whole symbolism of the salmon right now. Cause I would make this podcast like four hours long, but there's something of the, of a sacred nature here of, of, of the Christ symbol even, and something beneath the Christ symbol because the salmon was important before the Jesus story. So, but they're dancing with that same kind of, um, uh, like longing for, for the transcendent. And anyway, he, he, the versions are slightly different, but he, he puts his hand in the salmon and it burns him and, and, and he drops it and he puts his finger in his mouth and, and to alleviate the pain, but he tastes the salmon and it's like, uh, he can't go back. Now he's tasted the transcendent. He's tasted something. He's, it's like that longing for deeper meaning has been very, very briefly, not satisfied, but like a, maybe like a, um, an itch that, that is scratched for a moment and, and he can't go back. It's like, it's the shift from, from being less conscious to more conscious. It's eating from the apple. Like eating from the apple is a good, is a good thing. You know, it's also a terrible thing because now consciousness has, has been, has woke up. So the consequences to this is that he's wounded in the thigh and he's either shot through with an arrow and it runs right through his testicles or he has some kind of wound, festering wound in the thigh area. The thigh is, is a euphemism for, for the genitals. So like the, the, our most vulnerable and, and generative dimension of, of masculinity, that's where the wound is. Of course, that's where it is. You know, that's why in the, in the biblical story, Abraham makes his servant um, swear, he's like, swear to me before I die that you'll go, I think to his cousin or something like that, and, and try to find a wife for Isaac. He's like, put your hand on my thigh. Yeah, that wink, wink, put your hand on my thigh. It's like our most vulnerable and generative and creative um, um, physicality and also um, kind of the seat of, of psychic potency. That's where the wound is. Now, just pause for a moment. What are we talking about with the father wound? Well, one thing we're talking about is our own fathers were wounded in the thigh. Because everyone gets wounded in the thigh. Every, everyone um, experiences shame, fear, guilt, confusion, um, and, and a cutting off, and a castration even of potency. And some of that is done by culture. It's like, okay, what, you know, we need guardrails and boundaries. That's just part of part of the human village and those can go too far um, and we need we need boundaries from our own fathers but they can go too far and they wound us right in the right in the most vulnerable places and this leaves so let me just be clear the thigh is really stands for um, what is generative and creative and and, and, and powerful in a way. And it leaves him cold. 
You could say it leaves him impotent, it leaves him confused, and it festers. And, um, well, actually, here's a line from, from, from Johnson. He says, uh, the Fisher King's wound leaves him cold, and he is never again able to be warm. Can you can you feel can you feel what the what it's trying to describe here? It's like there's a there's a coldness present here, and you can't get it back. It's like I can't get the zest and the zeal and the passion for life back. I've been run through. And he says we may die in our coolness, and he puts quotes around coolness, which is one of the characteristics of a Fisher King wounded man. Now think about that. Now this first time I read this, it like. Well, it was it was like a a, a wound to the thigh. Uh, the the arrow was released, you know, there the the spear launched, and because I have spent much of my life carrying carry carrying that's fine, and caring about being cool. I mean, I remember this just like when I was pretty young, like elementary school, like worried about my hair and like the way I would walk. Am I walking in a cool way? You know, am I not walking in a cool way? Like, and a lot of comparison games. And this is all very common in early adolescence. And it's the middle school playground and the high school um, cafeteria and it's mean girls. And there should be a mean boys version of that fantastic epic film. Um, But yeah, but here's, but think about that line. We may die in our coolness. We may spend the rest of our life trying to be cool and and inside that coolness the real spark of generativity and creativity is 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 suppressed it it's festering down there like a wound and we might even appear cool to other people wear the right clothes buy the right cars be into the right kinds of aesthetics and really have no contact with with the instinctual generative deep vital creative outpouring of our own um, zeal for life, our own eros even. Okay. And um, and I just want to mention another version because I think the other version is kind of cool too. It's like there's a knight instead of coming upon the salmon, he's out and and his name is Amor, I think. So love, he's out on the quest for love. And of course, isn't that what everyone's on the quest for? And think about your own father in this way. Uh, Or think about your husband and and you don't even have to turn it into a male-female thing. Our own sort of universal quest for for love. And um, anyway, he meets a pagan from the Holy Land. It's like that lovely combination of um, sacred and profane, and and of course he he has to lower his his javelin, and and uh, they go after each other and with spears, and and he he does actually kill the pagan, and he wins, but the cost is too great, and and he's and he's castrated, you know, he's he's wounded in the thigh, and and Johnson has this great line about then the wounded knight here, which is a eventually going to be called the Fisher King. He's too ill to live and unable to die. And I think um, there's an absolute epidemic in our culture of men and of fathers who are too ill to live and unable to die. And they don't know how to relate to this wounding in their potency, in their creativity. And now, if since the culture is like beating the drum of words like toxic masculinity, and it's like it goes further underground, further underground, and, and men become quieter and quieter and quieter. 
and more depressed and more anxious and more numb. Now, um, in the story, in a general sense, the, the spirit of life, even the, the Holy Spirit, we could say, um, returns when the instincts or nature is restored. That, that you know, the, the thigh again is that instinctual self and, and, and we're more inspirited. We're filled with inspiration, filled with the wind, the, the mystery of God, really. Um, when we're relating again to the instincts, which, were, which are wounded now, um, but, but they come back online, to, to put it that way. Because you can't ultimately kill the, ins the instinctual. You can't. Uh, this is the problem with fundamentalist culture. I, I, I might make a podcast here soon on, on fundamentalism, sexuality, and, and you know just a bit of my own history because I've been watching that documentary, Shiny Happy People, about ultra-fundamentalist um, you know, Christian um, subculture. And uh, anyway, it's like kill the instincts, kill the instincts, kill the instincts, and the opposite happens. It leaks out sideways, you know. Um, don't think about sex. Don't think about sex. Sex is wrong. Sex is wrong. It, it, you push it off, push it down, push it away. And that's all you end up thinking about. That's not, there's not a way of relating to, to sexuality, sensuality, um, the instincts. And the instincts are more than just obviously sexuality, but it's a dimension of it. Or even you could say the vital self, um, you know, we, we, have to, we, we have to recover our instinctual self to become our full vital selves and to feel fully alive. And in the story in The Fisher King, um, only fishing alleviates the pain, which I just love. Like, uh, I, I love it as like a modern, like almost cliche again. Like, think about the, you know, men getting away to fish or to hunt or something like that. Well, some of what's happening archetypally, well, how old is this? Well, I don't know, 900,000 years old? That's probably how old it is. And uh, fishing alleviates the pain, but it only, it only, it's only very temporary. And, um, and, and we can die like this. We can die uh, having never experienced any healing of the wound, just temporary alleviation while we're out, quote, fishing. Fishing, I, I suppose, can be an image of, of meddling with the unconscious, you know, like dipping that, um, the bait down into the underworld. But it's, it's temporary. Until you're thrown overboard like Jonah and swallowed by the underworld, you're, you're only ever going to get a taste. So um, now, is the wound good or bad? Like, if we, again, I, I want to talk about the father wound. And, and here's what I'd say is, as much as every father is wounded, the wound also prepares us for consciousness. It's, it's again, like the... the Adam and Eve story of consciousness. It's like, um, all right, it, it, we leave the world of, of naivety and the womb. And we have a hard time leaving the womb uh, at times. Um, but the wound can help us leave the, the fantasy of, of having all of our, our needs met through the literal and symbolic umbilical cord of the mother. So suffering is, is, is like part of the training for even becoming our full selves, like it or not. It's uncomfortable to say that, but suffering is part of the training that if, if we have um, the capacity to heal or to give gifts or to give back to the world or give to our children or, or give to the community and the culture, we don't get to find out what those gifts are without some degree of suffering, without, without 
um, the way in which the wound prepares the, the, the field and turns the soil over. Okay. So I hope, you, I hope you're with me so far. Because I want to say something else about the king, because I want to um, bring out the fuller dimensions of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about father. And in part, we're talking about the king because the entire Parsifal story, the entire Grail story, the entire Fisher King story is really about the king and about the king, in this case, being wounded and the, and the community being sick. And you can take that culturally, like when our, when our leaders are sick, like in American culture, then it leads to a kind of cultural illness. And we can take that inside the own, our own psyche when our own inner king is wounded um, and is laying around on a couch, and this wound is basically festering, and there's a lot of complaining about the wound, and maybe wound, and maybe there's a little alleviation here or there. Um, our own inner king is not stepping forth in 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 his own radiance. Um, so these myths are are telling us about the the inner psychic landscape and a little bit about culture, about about the way that plays out in culture and. And so what do we mean when we mean king? Well, we mean the, the ruler of the inner domain. And, um, and you've probably met people who have very little access to the king or the queen. And here's what, here where we can really start to blur the lines because the queen is, the, is another version of the, of the ruler of the inner domain. It's the feminine expression of that. The king is the masculine expression of that. There's no agency when the king is not present or the queen. There's no agency. There's no autonomy. There's no sense of um, long-term suffering for a cause or, a, or willing to suffer uh, consequences for something greater. There's not a sense of contact with, own, with their own gifts. There's a lot of apology, a lot of wallowing, and, and a lot of victimization. And the king is nowhere to be present. And, you know, my wife uh, pointed this out one time. The... Uh, Dang it. Now I can't remember his name and you'll know it. The Lord of the Rings fans. Um, Aragon, Aragon, maybe that's his name. Um, he's like going around slaying, uh, you know, fighting in the shadows kind of, but he hasn't stepped into kingship. It's like, uh, he's still somewhere on the journey. He's still much more of the Fisher King than he is the inner, than the inner King. So, um, so again, when that part is wounded, the, the generative part is wounded. And, the, and, and a king or a queen is essentially generative. That's their dominant archetypal energy. And you and I have, have these latent capacities to be generative adults and nurturing leaders and kings and queens. And, and it's why Disney is a billion-dollar industry. All they got to do is throw in an occasional prince princess, king, queen, even if it's kind of hidden and, and it's like that thing, it, it activates inside and we pay attention. The lion king, it's called, you know? Okay. Um, but when the, when the inner king is, is wounded and hasn't stepped onto the throne, I guess we could say, um, the, the land is unproductive. And to, to harken back to what I was saying earlier with, with Johnson, the, the feeling function is wounded. The, the king doesn't know what's meaningful and what's worthy and what's of value. Um, okay, I, I'm looking for a little uh, line just to give you a sense of the flavor here. Then I'm going to shift gears to Iron John, I think. Now notice his, his, uh, his way of, of 
talking about modern life, to live in affluence. You might say, well, I'm not as affluent as, you know, some, you know, suburb or some friend you know or whatever. But from a, a global and historical point of view, if you are listening to this podcast, you are enormously affluent. To live in affluence, have everything one ever dreamed of having, success and ownership beyond the kings of earlier times. And isn't that the truth? Like our level of access and ownership and having and getting what we want and beyond the kings of earlier times. But to find all of this ashes in one's mouth is the particular kind of existential suffering that is the lot as modern fisher kings. To have it all, but to find all of this ashes in one's mouth is the particular kind of existential suffering that is the lot as modern fisher kings. Really, really powerful indictment here of modern life. And back to the question, what are we talking about when we talk about the father wound? Well, it manifests like this sometimes where um, outwardly successful names and roles and paychecks and, and, and yet it, it tastes like ashes and there's a depression that's happening. Something is being pressed down and there's a kind of existential suffering. It's like, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't taste right. And, and that's the part of the, the wounded father dynamic in our world. And, and therefore, our, our sense of enjoyment of life is, is belittled. It's diminished. That's probably the right way to say it. It's diminished. Our capacity to enjoy beauty is diminished. Our capacity to enjoy, enjoy joy, <laughs> to feel joy, to consent to joy, to be exuberant human beings, to be exuberant men, it's killed off in our fathers. And, and the sons and daughters suffer. The sons and daughters suffer. It's, uh, um, the father... The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And that's you and that's me and that's the sons and daughters of, of the wounded fathers in our culture. And um, Now, I don't want to, I feel like I just want to say this in passing because one of the secrets of the Fisher King is, is the way in which the, the wound starts to heal. And one of the necessary components is in comes another character named Parsifal. And, and his name means the holy fool or the innocent fool. And, and, um, and he has to go on his own wild adventures to eventually learn the question of service. Like, whom does the grail serve? Like, like he's on a quest for the grail, but he doesn't know, he doesn't know what for. And that's, again, the feeling function. That's the question of values. And, but a return to our own innocence, even our own sacred, foolish, childlike innocence is absolutely essential if we want to touch our own inner wounds and begin to understand the way in which our, our own fathers wounded us. They wounded us when we were innocent. And so that innocence goes underground. And the only way to get it back, in a sense, from the mythic point of view, is to, to play with it and, and, and to let it come back, but in a light way. That's that great combination of the sacred fool, 
you know, and that's why I think that's why Jesus says, unless you change and become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're sophisticated and well-educated and affluent and you know, and you're successful and you have a paycheck and there's a power system in which you're somewhere in the hierarchy that's satisfying to you. And um, meanwhile, that innocence is cut off along with vitality, joy, life, um, and the possibility of deeper service. So it's like, yeah, no wonder in midlife people buy a Corvette or whatever, you know, some cliche. It's that that's coming. It's like waking back up and saying, hey, where's the kid here? Where's the innocence? Where's where's the real wonder of life? It's just a little misplaced. Okay, I want to use a little bit of um, a Robert Bly now. This is um, from Iron John. And again, a book that c- continues to... Um, I think kind of profoundly and remarkably speak into our present world. And I hope it continues to do so. I'll, I'll do my own part of, of popularizing his ideas. And, and maybe if I'm lucky and along some uh, distant shore, I'll, I'll be able to add to them some of my own two cents. So um, he has a chapter, maybe chapter four or something, called um, Hunger for the King in a Time of No Father. And... I mean, almost that is a poem, hunger for the king in a time of no father. He's saying, welcome to modern life. We are deeply hungry for the king, for the dominion, and rightly, it's like like in Buddhism, right living, um, that's the, the phrase in, in Buddhism, um, right relationships, um, and uh, orienting our life around what's really true, meaningful, and valuable. And we're hungry for this. We're starving. We're starving and they're giving us drugs. We're starving and they're giving us calories. They're starving and they're giving us um, pornography. We're, uh, we're starving and they're giving us distractions. They're starving and they're giving us Instagram feeds. We're starving and they're giving us Facebook. We're starving and they're giving us um, bullshit news stuff. We're, we're hungry. We're hungry. We're starving for 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 the king you know and you can even extend that even to god in a way because it's almost impossible to talk about the longing for father without the the longing for the transcendent for the king um this is why god is called a king among you know about 20 other things in the in the scriptures and again i might i'll just throw that in in case it's it's starting to sound too one-sided the king isn't the only archetype that 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 the masculine or the feminine holds. King and queen is just one facet. It's just an extremely important facet. But this, the psyche is awesome. It's mysterious. It's, um, you know, Matthew Fox has a book, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, and he lists 10 major um, uh, uh, archetypes that are latent and potent and ready in the masculine psyche. And that's just to speak of the masculine. Maybe the feminine has, you know, 5 million, I don't know. It's much more vast like the ocean. So anyway, um, the king is just one dimension, but we're hungry for the king in a time of no father. And where has the father gone? And that's really what, what I, one of the things that Iron John, the book, is, is wrestling with and the myth is wrestling with. So um, now I want to try to describe using, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, borrowing some things from Bly here, but like, all right, what's it like to to be alive right now in the, well, now in the 21st century. Um, this book was written in the 80s. So 
Um, that was the 20th century. So what's it, what's, it, what's it like to be alive right now? And what's our relationship like with the Father? And well, first of all, there's deep-seated mistrust. It's deep, deeply-seated mistrust. We don't trust, many of us don't trust our own fathers. We don't trust other fathers. A, a friend of mine said this week that she um, was wanting to have a child, but um, it's like she looked around and can't find anyone that that would be that she thinks would make a good dad and it's like whoa what is happening you know what is happening and and even with the like I, I'm, I've been noticing I'm always curious about like what's happening spiritually and, and sometimes psychologically and with um like the tearing down of the statues and the berating of founding fathers. It's either like extreme praise or let's tear everything down to the ground. And, and I just like to express maybe both, but particularly the founding fathers, it's like we're projecting onto the past our own deep-seated mistrust about the present. Not that the founding fathers were innocent or whatever. I mean, there's, there were complex human beings in a complex world and so forth and so on. And, and they made many mistakes and they believe things that I, I don't personally believe in. Okay, but um, it's like if we can burn their statues to the ground, it's like it alleviates the, the just for a moment, like the Fisher King, we get just a taste of it. It alleviates that, that anger and rage and mistrust about what's actually happening right now, our own dads, in other words. And maybe another thing I want to say is that uh, kind of in the, um, that's, you know, part of what this, this chapter is talking about, hunger for the king in, in a time of no fathers, that at least one dimension of, of becoming a man, and, and you could also wonder at this point, Robert Bly's more interested in that question, of becoming, uh, becoming a woman, is there's some rejection of the father that has to go on. Like, that's the traditional way. It's like, at some point, you leave. You leave home. Like, Jesus left Joseph. He wasn't like, hey, I, I want to, like, go be the Messiah and all this. <laughs> but I also want to keep my job as a carpenter, <laughs> whatever. Um, and, but now it's, it's different. It's different because the father figure in our culture is like a bumbling idiot. That's the major cultural trope right now. Just pay attention. If you, if you haven't before and if you've never thought about this, I challenge you. Pay attention to the commercials and to the sitcoms and ask yourself, what does this tell me about the father? What does this tell me about the wounds of the father? What does this tell me about what a father should or shouldn't be? What's the message being communicated? And oftentimes it's really a way of working through mistrust here by turning the father into the bumbling idiot. And there's really nothing to reject when it comes to the bumbling idiot. I mean, I suppose you could reject the bumbling idiot, but it's like they're already making a fool of themselves. They're already not trustworthy. They're definitely not a king. They're pretty much just an idiot. And, um, and maybe the other extreme of that, if they're not an idiot, they're just a tyrant. That's the so-called toxic stuff that goes on. They're just a tyrant. These are the two possibilities. So it's an age where there's really too little father energy. That's what he's saying. There's too little, too little of the father. It's, it's gone underground, and, and, and it's like those desert rivers that just disappear. And that's what the culture feels like. And 
And some of you may celebrate that, say, well, good. You know, men had a good run and dads had a good run and fathers had a good run. And now let's let someone else, let's let the feminine, let's let, let's let the mother, let's let, let's let, let the sacred feminine take over. And, and, um, the problem is that, um, you can't get away from the hunger. You can't get away from the hunger. It's a full human psyche longs for feminine and masculine longs for king and queen and, and culture can't be too one-sided. So, um, and of course, another thing that's happening in the modern world is that the village has been destroyed. The, the, the traditional archetypal <laughs> village and who's in the village? Well, father and mother, of course, but also, um, the warrior and the elder and the uncle and the shaman or magician and, and, and maybe a, a half a dozen other roles for women and, and roles for men and, and, or the, the witch or the crone or, okay, all that has kind of like been totally blown up by the modern world and replaced with industrial culture and, and the nuclear family embedded in a, in a hyper-industrialized environment of productivity and, and, and just the nuclear family is supposed to have it all together. And of course, just look around, that's not happening. You know, you can't expect your spouse to fulfill all the roles of the village, but that's essentially what we're doing with romance. And, um, so it's increasing our hunger. That's my point. It's increasing our hunger and, and it's increasing our sense of isolation and, and the father, our own wounded fathers, are um, shadows of themselves. And either feel like they have to fulfill everything, and if they do feel that, they know they can't. And so they carry this, and it often brings them down. It causes them to be inept. It causes them to to just wallow in the wounding of the thigh. And... They might give a lot at work, but they've got nothing left when they come home. That's, that's the modern um, curse. I'm going to give all my creativity and vitality to this paycheck and to this collection of people that I certainly don't want at my own funeral. And when I come home, I've got nothing left. I'm just, I'm totally drained and there's not enough of a village to pick me up and, and, or to support my family, or to support my kids. There's no uncle to come alongside and say, "All right, um, let's let's go to the woods or whatever." And now, another thing Robert Bly claims in in this chapter is that um, the, there's kind of a, a mystery to the father son relationship and to the father daughter relationship. And um, he's focusing more on the son, but I th- I think. I hear, I just wonder, and you can check it out with your own experience. Like, well, how, let's, let's think about the father as, as nourishing the child in some way. Well, how? And, and Blyce likes to say that, that, that we receive nourishment from the bodies of our fathers, not from the mind. The mind is not the place to, to look for this, but the body is the place to look. And, and, um, and sometimes, it, you know, for 900,000 years, sons and daughters um, moved and worked alongside their parents, alongside their fathers, alongside their mothers, where all that, the uncommunicating, the, the, the nonverbal ways of expressing, expressing oneself and being in the world and moving in the world is what nourishes young people, what nourishes the child and 
Um, and now that is been just taken from us in the industrialized world where the father is swept off somewhere else. And, um, and he's giving all his nourishment away to the corporation. And the son doesn't know what to make of it. The son has no idea. I don't know my dad. I don't know my dad. I never saw my dad. I never saw his, his place of employment a single day in my life. I don't even know what he does. Um, you know, my kids have a hard time explaining what I do. <laughs> I have a hard time explaining what I do. And it's just part of the, it's part of the modern curse. But particularly if you're going to the office or like, what is that world? And you don't get to find out. You don't get to find out um, your own dad's way of being. And, and, and so we grow bitter and, and, and then, and sometimes we just turn to the mother. Well, um, all the nourishment I need must come through the feminine. And once my mother is no longer the primary, uh, uh, what's, what's the right word? Um, source for, for nourishment, then it'll be my girlfriend. It'll be my spouse and, and I'll be fed in this way. And, and, and to hell with the father anyway, he wasn't there. So Bly says the hunger is, is a kind of lack of body nourishment coming from, coming from the father. And I just think that's so mysterious. Like if I think about my own past and the way I was raised and it's, I think it's worth pondering what kind of nourishment did I receive and, and, and did I not receive, you know? So this kind of milieu that I'm describing creates a lot of distrust of older men, like a lot of suspicion, a lot of demonization. And the father then, like the wounded fathers of our world are often remote and weak. That's, those are the main things. They're remote, they're distant, they're, and they're weak. And I don't, I don't mean um, weakness like physically, although I could mean that. I mean, a lot of this, you know, we're, we, it blurs the lines, vitality, strength, eros, thigh. Think about the problems we're having, like epidemics of, of erectile dysfunction and lack of appetite and, and, and uh, an entire um, medicine cabinet of numbing drugs just to take the edge off. You know, it's like, that's a kind of weakness, but I mean it more like emotionally weak, like the emotional intelligence is down. It's the wounded feeling function that it's like that frequency is so, <clears throat> excuse me, so low we can't hear it. And so remote fathers are weak. And so we end up distrusting older men and distrusting our own fathers and being suspicious. And, um, and we don't get to see what they do, as I said before. And, um, and perhaps what it is that we're longing for is the blessing of the father, not the lessons, you know, not the um, uh, teach me in words the right beliefs, but we're longing for blessing. It's like, well, you have that in the Jacob story. I mean, he, he's, he's second born, but he tricks his brother into getting the blessing of the father. That tells you something that, that really sons and daughters, they want the blessing of their father. They really do. And, and oftentimes we don't get it because the father doesn't have enough king energy. He can't even bless himself. He doesn't feel blessed. And so how the hell is he supposed to pass on any kind of blessing to his children? And so that hunger is great and it's terrible and it's filled with melancholy and 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 lament and pain and 
And then the dark sides, rage and anger and bitterness and violence. All because we, you know, in part, there's no blessing and we don't feel blessed. We don't feel touched by the sacred and the transpersonal sacred, not only the kingship of our own earthly fathers, but like the, the capacity for them to tap into the transpersonal blessing of fathers of all time. And they're not giving that to their daughters. They're not giving that to their sons. And um, Yeah, I was, <laughs> I, I just was thinking to the Jacob story. He steals the blessing from the father. And then, and then something like 20, 30 years later, he, 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 he still doesn't feel blessed. And he's got to wrestle a man, angel, God, all night long demanding, bless me, bless me, bless me. See, when you steal it, and it's not given by either the inner king and the and the and the father is actually absent. And Isaac is a weak father, by the way. Jacob's um, Jacob's father. He can't see. He has weak eyes. So that's like symbolically saying he can't see what's really going on. Yeah, our fathers are blind. So what a what a great example of a you know that of of an ancient story speaking to our modern world. Our fathers are blind. Yeah, they can't see. And. Uh, and yet we long for the blessing anyway. So, um, okay, I don't want to get too hung up here because I want to say some things about patriarchy. And um, I'm going to read some quotes from Bly and, and, um, and then offer some questions here. So first of all, as an aside, Bly says uh, patriarchy is matriarchal on the inside. Now, chew on that. I'm not even going to explain it. But patriarchy is matriarchal on the inside. And okay, so what do we mean? Now, patriarchy tec technically means um, rule of the father. And what I'm saying is, yeah, we live in an age where patriarchy has gone sideways because we don't have the rule of the father. It's not that men are the problem. It's that the, something is disordered in the psyche and in the culture. And you can have patriarchal rule of the father and matriarchy rule of the mother. mother and when they're in this harmonious and often sometimes um, blessed tension, you have a more full psyche and a more full culture and a more full family. You need the rule of the father, which is different than the rule of the mother, but it's not a one or the other. And please, please, I beg you, don't play these games of blaming things on quote patriarchy. Define the terms. What are you even talking about? I was talking to a friend the other day and we were talking about some problem and, and she said, well, is that just because of the patriarchy? And I'm like, what? what the hell? Like, what are we talking about? Do you mean men you don't like? Do you mean the way certain men behave? If so, which ones? Is It's just become a blanket term that is just really um, almost devoid of meaning. It's just, it's a way of lobbing a, a stone. Like if someone calls me patriarchal, like, okay, well, all right, fine. But let's not play that game. Let's just say, what are we talking about as best we can? So I want to read some things from Bly here. Genuine patriarchy brings down the sun through the sacred king. This is all in this kind of kingship uh, orientation here. Like brings the sun into every man and woman in the culture. Like if you meet someone who has kingly energy, that's the patriarchy doing its best when it's bringing light of sun, clarity, um, um, warmth, generativity into the culture. And yeah, how beautiful is that? Um, and genuine matriarchy brings down the moon 
oh, this is like, I mean, this probably doesn't give you chills. It does to me. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. The dark side of things, the mysterious things, the way the cycles of the moon, the appearance of of just enough light during the full moon and the and the mystery of the new moon and the cycles and and okay the matriarchy brings down the moon through the sacred queen and god do we need some sacred queens who are dancing with the moon and and who move like the tide and not like the blinding midday sun like both all right Okay, to, and, and, and the sacred bring, the queen brings this to every man and every woman. There's not a gender division here like us. men get this and women get this. No, patriarchy brings it to us. Matriarchy brings it to us, the sun and the moon and, and, the, and the gifts, the, the archetypal um, and symbolic gifts of these things. The death of the king and queen means that we now live in a system of industrialized domination. And that's really what most people, I think, are trying to get at when they say, quote, patriarchy. It's a system of industrial domination, which is not patriarchy. That's what I would say. It's not, it's not patriarchy in, in, a, in, in the more sacred sense. The system we live in gives no honor to the male mode of feeling nor to the female mode of feeling. Really, industrial domination gives no honor to the male mode of feeling. In fact, your feelings don't matter. The feeling function should be cut off and shut down and tucked away and buried forever. In the, the male and the female, then that's, those are some of the wounds of the industrial domination. Part of the wound, the father wound, really. The system of industrial domination determines how things go with us. In the world of resources, values, and alliances. Do you hear how that should be the function of the, the feeling function of the, of the sacred king to speak mythically? No, 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 no. The industrial domination system is going to tell us how to use resources, what is ultimately of value, and where our allegiances should lie. That sums up modern American life. What animals live and what animals die? Industrial domination will tell us. How should we treat children? That's the next line. Industrial domination will tell us. And we can use all kinds of sophistication like rubrics and psychological metrics and, and case studies. And this is how children are treated. Meanwhile, the sacred king and the sacred queen are run out of town. And the mode, excuse me, and in the mode of industrial domination, there is neither king or queen. They're gone. Here's a line from D.H. Lawrence. He says, Men have been depressed now for many years. Let's pause here. Men have been depressed now for many years. Like when, when next time you hear someone say, well, the patriarchy this, just remember this. Yeah, okay. Whatever you're getting at, there's some truth here. But men have been depressed by the industrial domination system, you could say, and by many other factors. They've been depressed now for many years in their male and resplendent selves. So what's, what's the wound, what are the wounds that you received from your father, and what are the wounds that your own father carried? Well, perhaps 
they were depressed for many years in their male and resplendent selves, depressed into dejection and almost abjection. Is that not evil, he asks, when the culture does that to men? Yeah, I think it is. It is evil. And you get the image of the dark father at that point, like Darth Vader. In our own time, this is Bly, in our own time, when the father shows up as an object of ridicule, as he does on TV, or in a fit field of suspicion, as he does in Star Wars, that's Darth Vader, or a bad-tempered fool when he comes home from the office with no teaching, or a weak puddle of indecision as he stops inherently kingly radiance, a weak puddle of indecision. The son has a problem, S-O-N. The son has a problem. The daughter has a problem. How does he imagine his own life as a man? How does he imagine his own life as a daughter? So many of our fathers were shells of themselves, objects of ridicule, of suspicion, of bad temper, prone to fits of rage, having no teaching, or a puddle of indecision. Yeah. And is it their fault? Yeah, we never, I don't think it's, it's necessary to let your own father off the hook of very specific um, um, sins, we could say. Very specific sins. You have to look at those and say, I, I, don't, I, I don't forgive you on this. Um, forgiveness is tricky, but I'm just kind of being blunt. I, I, I won't look away. Um, and at the same time, um, what about the way in which the world uh, stripped them of their own kingly possibilities and shot them through with an arrow in the thigh in their most vital area and said, stay put. Men like this just sometimes just turn to women. You teach me, you guide me, you carry me, you be my emotional self. You coddle me, you make love to me. That's a big burden. No wonder women are saying, uh, no, no thanks. Here's some more Bly. Society without the father produces these bird-like men. Okay, so one possibility is that they fly away. Okay, now mainly I was talking about sort of sinking into depression. I'm going to talk about the other, other side of this. Society without the father produces these bird-like men. So intense, so, so charming, so open to addiction. So sincere as those great bays of, Hellespont, of the Hellespont produced the cranes Homer noticed that flew in millions toward the sun. <laughs> He's sort of like playing with the Icarus or Horus image of the flyers, those who fly up and can't see their own shadow. Can't see their own humanness, really. Okay. Let's turn to some questions here. And these are these are like journal questions. If you're a father, here's a question. What what is sapping your vitality? 
what is sapping your vitality? Like, where is it? Where is your vitality is another question, but what is presently sapping it? Addiction. Um, drugs. Alcohol. I don't know. If you're a father, what is sapping your vitality? Um, it, and here's like a sub-question of that. Now, what's the relationship between your passions and your values? Really, write out your passions if you have any. And if you don't have any, say, wow, um, I didn't realize how open my thigh wound is. But try to make a relationship, a connection between your passions and your values. Maybe there's not much of a relationship, so you might start to be curious about that. Here's another question. All right, what do we do with the father wound? That's not the question. Um, I want to ask a, 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 a question that's related to that. Have you ever grieved your own father? One of my friends whose dad died recently, we thought about making a podcast about grief and the father. Maybe we will. And um, Have you grieved your father? And are you grieving? Or are you pushing it at bay? And what do I mean by grief? Well, I might mean tears, but I might mean, but I, but I mean ceremony, ritual. Have you ever written a letter to your father, even if he's dead? Have you ever written a letter to your father that you don't intend to send, but in, but in which you tell the truth as best you can? And then read that out loud to the forest five times and see if it doesn't do it, do something to you, shape you in some way, take you through the portal of grief. Grief is a great doorway of transformation to change forms. And that's what we need. That's what, that's what the sons and daughters of, of the wounded father culture need. We need transformation and, and grief is a part of that. And have you ever had a conversation with your ancestors? I have. I've talked with my own dad who's dead, with my grandfather who's dead, and through the, into the generations in, in which, um, that are hidden in the fog like, well, where did I come from? And what, what wounds? I, I, I felt in particular speaking, you know, in a kind of prayerful way to my own ancestors that, that the father wound here or the wound, certain masculine wounds are very old, very, very, very old. And, and the dam is, is, um, is cracking here. Have you, ever, have you ever done a grief ceremony in which your own rage and anger and bitterness can move around some in a safe enough way? I can't, in some ways, I can't think of a more important ritual act than to go out alone in the woods and express your own rage toward your actual father or your absent father or your dead father or... Um, or your sweet, loving, kind, funny father, but who had no center, you know? Yeah, you need to let that rise up. And, and if you can do it in a sacred way, then um, you're less likely to, to, to burn the whole village down. Here's a sub-question to grief here. But um, do you know your own family patterns? Have you ever tried to identify them? And have, Because I, I inherited certain modes and ways of being and seeing the world that I got from my fathers and um so what are those patterns and let's not think let's not be 
naive about the the human psyche here and pretend everybody is just a tabula rasa. We're not a tabula rasa. We're born um, carrying certain uh, unfinished scripts, like like uh, the end of the play kind of trails off, and we pick up the pen and. And we can't help feeling the force of what's come before. And so I don't know, what are your family patterns? And if you don't know, I, I highly suggest that you you spend some time getting to know them. And otherwise, you might just be resigned to, to playing them out. Here's another journal question. Make a list of men you actually admire, of fathers you actually admire. You don't have to go saints on this, you know. I mean, and, and if possible, hang out with them. Hang out with them. Okay, here's another question. What would it look like to follow the radiance of the king? It's a, it's a real mythic question. Or to let it rise up from within. Here are ways that you can, you can begin to feel the radiance of the king or even the radiance of the queen. And, and the traditional methods are things like solitude and fasting and, or circling the mountain like in Buddhism or circling the, the um, um, what's it called in Islam? The... The, the mosque, I, I can't think of what it's called, I'm drawing a blank, it's okay. You get the point, but um, kind of ceremony or a self-emptying fasting ceremony or prayer or, or joining a circle of other generative souls and breaking up with other circles, you know, just saying, all right, I, I need the kingly energy inside and what would it look like to give that space to arise? And solitude is a pretty good one. My alarm's going off. Speaking of fatherhood here, um, I have to pick up my daughter, so it's a beautiful timing. I got time for two more questions. What would it look like for you to break up with the cynical and bitter uh, modern son or daughter? Like, it's like the older brother in, in the prodigal son. He's bitter. You never gave me anything, and, and you can die like that, and what would it look like for you to, to break up with that? I think it, it has to involve expressing your own grief and rage and um, and maybe even a desperate act of prayer. Save me from my own deep-seated cynicism and bitterness. But what would it look like to, to, to step off that train? And You might have to break up with some people in your life in order to do that, that keep, keep us there. So... Um, Two more things. I want to say something about trauma because the father, just bringing up um, father wound here, means that we're also talking about trauma. And um, I don't want to do a whole podcast now, you know, P.S., three hours long about trauma. I've mentioned some things about it in the past, but um, trauma is, 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 um, is not really what happened to us. Those are the wounds that happened to us. Trauma is the mechanism that that is activated, that protects us from experiencing our own vulnerabilities and our own innocence again, and, and therefore to be wounded and hurt. It, it's trying to keep us safe, our um, reactions. And most of those are unconscious. When people say things like, I'm triggered, most of the time people don't know they're triggered if it's trauma. And, um, but um, and often not in the moment of when, it, when it's happening. But anyway, if you feel um, particularly taken over when it comes to 
father, when it comes to father wounds, when it comes to traumas, when it comes to a, a, a sense that you don't have much contact with your wild innocence and you're so protected and your modes of being are so guarded that you might need some help. You know, you're, you're like a zombie that's walking around. The, you know, the zombie phenomenon is, is really, the, that's an image of the traumatized modern psyche. And, and all I want to say is um, trauma needs to be, needs to be dealt with um, in therapeutic, compassionate, and um, contexts that involve a lot of time. <laughs> that was a, kind of a convoluted way of saying, go slowly. And I encourage you to go toward it, but you might need some help. And I need some help from time to time. Sometimes I put down, you know, some versions of counseling or therapy on this podcast, but I only do that um, out of one side of my mouth. The other side of my mouth is, no, we really need professionals. And don't count your friend who went to a weekend yoga retreat on trauma as an expert. They're not. And um, it takes a lot of time and sensitivity, and it's pretty tricky terrain. So... If you feel particularly activated um, or totally numb and blank, you might need to get some help in this sense. So I think that's um, a long enough podcast. I actually could go on and I don't know, maybe I'll make a part two, but um, I think this is a, a fine place to stop. I just want to end by thanking you for listening and I hope you hear a hint, a guess, and a clue, and special thanks to my patrons who make this happen. And Check out my website, kentdobson.com, if you want to support me, if you want to see what kind of retreats and programs and companion guiding that I offer and uh, pilgrimages, and that's the um, go-to spot. So thanks so much. Peace.